Well, I've never smoked a cigarette, and there's a reason for that. Um, our neighbor, um, we'll call him David, uh, he stole a pack of cigarettes when we were little and stole a lighter and told me, let's go into the garage and smoke some cigarettes. So I said, okay. So we went into the garage, and I said, you go first, which he did. And so he lights up his little cigarette. I mean, we must have been, I don't know, like eight or nine years old, maybe, maybe even younger, seven years old or something. And he's, he puts a cigarette in his mouth, and he takes a, a long drag, as he had seen people do before, and he just starts coughing and coughing and wheezing, and his eyes are watering, and he looked like he was about to die. And he said, okay, now your turn. And so that's why I've never even taken a puff of a cigarette, because I was like, no, I think I'll just watch you do that for a while. So he tried, and he tried his hardest, and he just got a little way in. I mean, his eyes were just watering, but he thought he was, he was uh, you know, big stuff for, for smoking. And then uh, what a lot of smokers, even to this day, don't realize is everybody knows that you smoke. Uh, you think you hide it, but you smell like smoke. And so he goes home, and his dad says, have you been smoking? And he lies, and of course he gets caught. Um, and he got punished. He got like the spank of his life, I believe. So all of this was a wonderful lesson for me because I got to experience it vicariously through David, the neighbor, and um, just didn't have any desire for it. And that's what we call a, um, a, a punitive, well, there was a corrective type of um, consequence to sin is when, he, you know, his dad spanked him. There was also just the natural consequence of sin of coughing and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but then there's another one, um, the, the corrective. And when he tried to smoke again and his dad caught him again, he realized he had not yet learned his lesson. And so to fix that problem, he, for, he gave him a spank as well, but he forced David to sit in the garage until the whole pack of 20 cigarettes that he had stolen had been smoked. And, I mean, he just, he sat there for hours smoking all of these cigarettes. I mean, I picture him there for days uh, with no food, just sitting in the dark garage smoking his uh, cigarettes. And uh, David uh, quit smoking after that (laughs) and never, ever had a taste for it again, as far as I know. And I never had a taste for it just because of watching all of that. So from that little experience, we can see the three types of consequences that come from sin. The natural consequence, you know, of the coughing and the wheezing uh, of, of smoking when he shouldn't have been so young. Um, and then the, the punitive of getting the spank for doing it, which is punishment. And then, of course, the corrective, the one that actually worked, that stopped him doing it in the future, was making him go through that whole pack of cigarettes. And this is kind of a lesson that we learn in the book of Judges. So turn your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, chapter 9, uh, for the second time. We kind of split this long 57-verse chapter into two sermons. And just to remind you of the, the, the context here is, this is after the story of Gideon. Gideon um, has many wives as he kind of establishes himself as this ruler of Israel. Uh, he, out from his many wives come many sons. He has these 70 or so sons. And he has this one illegitimate son, Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king, remember that. And uh, with his concubine that lives down in Shechem. And this kid, Abimelech, grows up with a chip on his shoulder that he should be the rightful heir to the throne, even though he's illegitimate. And so in order to accomplish that, he wipes out his brothers, all of them. He kills all 70 of the brothers. He misses one who escapes, Jotham. Jotham runs up onto Mount Gerizim and and calls out a curse 
in the form of a parable. You remember that? He tells the story of the trees that wanted someone to rule over them, and he calls the olive tree, and the olive tree says, I'm busy making olives. I'm being productive here. I, I don't have time to do the, your little, um, uh, be a politician. I have real work to do. And he does the same with the fig tree, so does the same with the vine. And then he says, so eventually the trees just went to the bramble, you know, the tumbleweed, and said, will you rule over us? And tumbleweed's like, I'm not doing anything productive for the world, so sure. And so then Jotham ends this with a curse. And he says, if you have dealt in good faith with Jerubal, my father, um, Gideon, and of course they haven't, because they've just, you know, they've strayed from what he taught them and he killed his sons and wiped out his family. He calls out to his brother Bimelech and the people that helped him. If you have not acted in good, you know, if, if in good faith, then fine, let, let uh, Abimelech rule over you and everything will be wonderful. But if not, then basically he says, may the consequence of your sin come on your own head. And may God bring this consequence into your life that you deserve based on the way you have acted in bad faith towards my family and killing my brothers. And then Jotham runs away. And so that's kind of where the story uh, ended in, in verse 21. And there's this hanging note waiting for the resolution of, you know, when, when the, the, the writer of Scripture records a specific curse like that, there's a reason for it. Why has the the writer highlighted this parable and made such a big deal about it and made it the center of this chapter because this curse is about to unfold. And that's kind of what we see tonight in a sermon called Syntax, which um, my Aunt Peggy always used to say that, you know, uh, sin comes with a tax, a built-in cost for the pleasures that you're purchasing with sin. And those are the consequences of sin. So we're going to find out three types of consequences tonight so that we will understand the danger of temptation and hopefully that will help us to resist temptation. Um, natural consequences of sin, punitive consequences of sin, and corrective consequences of sin. And we'll see two in this passage, and we'll go to another passage for the final one. So let me just read for you from verse 22. And I'm going to read through most of this chapter and comment as we go. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And by the way, notice that that's getting shorter and shorter each time that the the judge is in charge. And verse 23, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So this is the overarching statement for the story that's about to unfold. This is what's happening. Jotham's curse is coming true. Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem that helped him, they're getting, both of them are going to get what's coming, what they deserve. Okay, look at verse 26, and it starts with this guy, Gal. And Gal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. So here we have this new character that enters the stage. He moves to the same town with Jeroboam's, um, sorry, with Abimelech and his leaders that helped him kill the brothers. And now he's on the scene. And just to summarize what happens is he kind of looks around and says, I think I can take this guy. And so he starts uh, fomenting a revolution against Abimelech. And has a, a wild party and gets people drunk and, you know, feeds them and, and is shooting off his mouth. And at this time says, why don't you rather follow me? Um, and we'll take down Abimelech. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And so what's happening, remember from, we learned from verse 23, because it's kind of strange how all these people that had just helped Abimelech, three years later, they're all willing to just turn on him. 
well, this is from the Lord. The Lord has sent this consequence. And so when Gaal says, hey, let's take Abimelech, everyone who just helped Abimelech is like, sure, let's, let's do that. And, and they kind of turn on him. And so that's what happens. But there's one of the rulers of the city, just to spice up the plot a little, um, who stays loyal to Abimelech. In verse 30, you meet him. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messages to Abimelech secretly, saying, behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. And in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early, rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. And in brackets, he's also saying, you know, not me, of course. <laughs> like, wipe out everybody, but don't, don't kill me. I'm on your side. So he stays there as a spy and sends these secret messages to Abimelech saying, listen, this guy's causing a revolution. Come and cut the head off this thing before it grows. And that's exactly what happens. So, um, so that starts happening. Verse 36, when Gaal saw the people, the people coming now um, to, they're coming down the mountain to attack him. They've laid ambush. He said to Zebul, verse 36, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. And Gaal spoke again and said, well, look, the people are coming down from the center of the land. And one company's down from the direction of the diviner's oak. So what's happening here is Zebul is saying, no, no, no. Your mind's playing tricks on you. Some god comes and calls in and says, there's movement on the mountains. I can't quite see. The sun's coming up. It's, it's very, very uh, dark, but I, I'm, I think there's people. So he goes, Gaal goes, and he looks, and he's like, oh, my goodness. Is that shadow? What is that? Those are people coming to attack us. Now, Zebul, who is a spy, saying, no, 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 no. Those are just the... Those are just the shadows of the trees on the mountain. And you'll know if you've watched Macbeth, this is a scene from Macbeth, remember? In, um, what's it, in Act 4, Scene 1, Macbeth goes to the witches to clarify if he's going to get in trouble, and they say, not until Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. Not until the forest comes to visit you at your castle. And he's like, oh, well, that can never happen, so I'm fine. And then this is what the people do, is they, they take branches and stuff that pretend to be trees, and they, they sneak down the mountain, and uh, Macbeth can't tell that if it's trees or if it's shadows or if it's people until it's too late. So eventually, Gaal realizes, no, 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 I can tell what's happening. There are break these, these trees and shadows are actually moving in a certain company. They're coming to get me. And Zebul says in verse 38, where's your mouth now? You who said, who's Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So basically, when it's too late, he says, okay, well, now they're on your doorstep. You're right. Go get them. So then that's what happens, um, and then the rest of this little part of the passage is kind of a back and forth of the fighting, and they take a city called Aruma, and um, verse 45, Abimelech fights against the city all of that day, captures the city, killed the people who were in it, and raised the city and sowed it with salt. This is something we came across in, in Israel, these places that were raised and sowed with salt. Just by the way, a little vocab word, when you raise a city, you burn it down. I know it sounds uh, counterintuitive, but that's what it means to raise a city, is you burn it down. And then to sow it with salt is environmental terrorism. It means once you've plowed the fields with salt, they can never grow again. You've ruined the soil permanently. So this was like a, a terrible thing that Abimelech did to the city. And the leaders in verse 46, they rush into a stronghold, 
and they were gathered there in verse 48. Abimelech went up to the Mount of Zalman, he and the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand, cut down a bundle of brushwood, took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So that's what they do. All of his men cut down little bushels of um, branches and they take it to this tower and they lay it there against this tower and they set it on fire and the whole tower catches the light and everybody inside who's been hiding in there in the stronghold, they all die, men and women, about a thousand people, verse 49 tells us. Verse 50, then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it, another city, and there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in and they went up on the roof of the tower. So the same thing's happening. So at Aruma, he burns down the tower and now he goes to Thebes and everyone runs into the tower and he comes to burn down the tower, but now he's getting sloppy. And verse 52, Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire because it's the wooden part. He wants to set the door on fire so they can set the rest of the tower on fire will come in. And this, my friends, is a rookie mistake. When everyone's on the roof, you don't walk up to the door in spitting distance because then anyone can take you out with anything that's heavy up there and that's exactly what happens. Um, verse 53, a certain woman, they don't even name her, a random lady threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young men thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. So you see the scene. He comes up there. There's this lady. A, a millstone uh, is just a, a round stone that they would grind flour with. And this was one that she could pick up. And she just kind of pushes it. He's like right down there. And she's, you know, all the men are like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And this old lady comes and like, I know, boonk, you know, and drops a stone from the tower. And it hits him on his head. And, he's, he's, and he realizes he's dying. His skull, you know, his brains are out there. He's like, yeah. So he doesn't want to go down in history as the guy who got killed by a woman too late. Um, so he tells his, his armor bearer, can you just kill me please and get this over and done with. And so the armor bearer kills him, but the narrative still says, no, um, you were killed by a woman. And not only that, not only was there this dishonor that it wasn't kind of this, you know, mighty man of valor that killed him, but some old lady with a, with a stone. Um, there's, a, there's an intentional, I believe, recording of the way he died in order to drive home the, this concept on verse 57. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 56. God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. Verse 57. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So there's a bit of a, a pun here that the judgment of God or the, the, the very sin that these people did, the very evil against God that they did, this guilt has come upon their heads and in his case, literally, to crush him. And so that's kind of where the story ends with the summary statement in verse 57 that harks back to verse 23. This was from the Lord. God was taking care of business here in the days that the judges ruled Israel. Okay, so let's look at our first type of consequence we see here, the natural consequence of sin. In verse 24, it says there, the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands. 
so there's something rotten in the state of Denmark here, isn't there? There's this, this problem that's fomenting with Gaal. And we're told it's because God is putting in motion something to bring a consequence on Abimelech. Now, the first consequence is a natural consequence. As I've explained, a natural consequence is something that just comes from the very sin that you're doing. It's just a natural part of the sin. So the sin of gluttony comes naturally for some people with obesity, which then can come with heart problems and diabetes and all sorts of things. It's a natural, it's not like God's striking you with these things. These things come from that sin. The sin of um, being addicted to nicotine and having no control of your nicotine appetite leads to lung cancer, throat cancer, these various things. They're just, they're linked there. Gossip means that people aren't going to trust you and you're going to ruin friendships. Um, Sabbath breaking continually is going to lead to burnout. I mean, it's just, there's just certain things that when you disregard God's guidance in Scripture, there's natural consequences that come from these things. Now, Abimelech gathered for himself a following. Think of the kinds of people that are now his, his following. They are mercenaries, People who are just for hire, the, the Bible literally calls them worthless and reckless fellows. How would you like that to be said of you by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> worthless, reckless fellows that he had to pay for their loyalty. People that don't mind following a guy who's about to kill his family. People who don't mind shedding blood for this person. And these are the people he surrounds himself with. What could possibly go wrong? This is just a natural consequence. When you, when you surround yourself with violent people who are up for grabs, then they're going to be able to turn on you when the next guy comes along and offers them something else, right? And that's exactly what happens. So he, he kills these innocent people, and the people that he hires to do it then turn on him. Natural consequence. Proverbs 6 verse 27 tells us about this type of consequence. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So Proverbs 6.27 has this built-in idea that there's certain things that w when you do these things, that the consequence just comes. You can't carry coals next to your clothes and hope that your, your clothes are fine. They're going to get burned. And when you hug sin and you pull sin to yourself, you're going to get hurt. You try to hide a hedgehog in your pants, you're going to get in trouble, right? There's just certain things that are prickly, and they just come with consequences, and that's what's happening here. The most widespread and devastating natural consequence of the modern era is AIDS, right? I mean, AIDS kills hundreds and thousands of people. It's one of the leading causes of death in South Africa. It's devastating. And there are marginal cases. There are some cases where people get AIDS through blood transfusion um, or, uh, you know, unhygienic situations in, in hospitals in third world countries. And, of course, the tragedy when a baby is born with HIV because of their mother. But by and large, most of the disease that comes from HIV is spread through fornication, promiscuity, homosexuality, and adultery. And these are things that are outlawed in Scripture. And when you step outside God's pattern, God's law, the protection that comes from that obedience is now forfeited. You see this in Romans 1.27. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
So Romans 1.27 is talking about this natural consequence of this sexually transmitted disease among the homosexual community, which, of course, spread to anyone who's willing to step outside of God's parameters of intimacy within the bounds of marriage. One man, one woman for a lifetime is the safest option, and it's the option that God commands. So God has made this clear in his word that if you obey me, you avoid these natural consequences. Obedience to laws, God comes with its own protection. So very simple application. Read God's word, obey God's word, and you, you just do away with the types of consequences that a lot of people live every day with, worrying about, do I have an unwanted pregnancy? Do I have a, an STD? Do, do I have this or that problem. It's like you just don't have that if you stay in God's bounds. And that applies with all sin. Okay, so that's natural consequences. Secondly, we see punitive consequences. So natural consequences just come from the natural outworking of the thing that you're doing. A punitive consequence comes from the word punishment. And it means you're being, you know, the, the purpose of this consequence is simply because, well, it's what you deserve. It doesn't come naturally, but it comes from outside. So in verse 23, we are told God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So yes, there's a natural consequence if you surround yourself by worthless fellows, they're going to turn on you. But God determined this was the time for him to actually directly get involved and cause this fiasco to unfold so that these people get what they deserve. Now, you might be saying, wait, God sent an evil spirit? What's going on there? Um, In verse... Uh, 23. God sent an evil spirit. Okay, so two things. Let's just talk about if evil spirit meant demon. It, It doesn't. I'll get to that, but just go with me. God can use demons, and that's still okay. Some people read this as God sent a demon that was kind of interfering. That's not what happened, but, but he, he can. Um, we see that in Job chapter 1, for example, where God allows Satan to smite Job, but God limits the amount of damage that Job can do. And then he extends that limit, but continues to limit it, right? We see it in 1 Samuel 16, where Saul is tormented by an evil spirit, meaning a, a demon that torments him mentally. He becomes mentally unstable because of this demon which was sent by God, it says, sent from the Lord. In 1 Kings 22, God allowed a deceiving spirit to put lies in the mouths of false prophets. So from Job 1, 1 Samuel 16, 1 Kings 22, we see God use evil spirits to accomplish his purposes. You might say, well, isn't that, isn't God causing the evil to happen then? Well, God is sovereign over evil, although he's not the author of evil. So the way I try to understand that, wrap my mind around it, is I I think of the general of an army who is planning an attack, and he's deciding when to do it, and maybe he's at a disadvantage, and so he needs to use clever tactics, and he realizes on a certain date there's going to be a new moon, so it's going to be darker than usual. Maybe there's going to be cloud cover, so you can't see the stars. There's a storm coming in, so it's going to be dark, and there's going to be the sound of the rain, and so he thinks, okay, on the new moon, with the cloud cover and the storm coming in, that's the night I'm going to plan this raid. And so he incorporates those things that are happening that are adverse against his, his enemy, and he uses those things to his advantage to accomplish his goal, which is victory. Now, at the end of that battle, the general gets credit for 
the use of those tactics. He gets credit for the use of the weather, but he doesn't get credit for the weather. See the difference? He doesn't get credit for making it a new moon. It was going to be a new moon. He doesn't get credit for making a storm and the cloud cover, but he does get credit for using those things that were there to accomplish his purpose. It's the same with God. God doesn't cause the evil. He doesn't make the evil. So in that sense, he doesn't get credit, or shall we say blame, for the evil. It's there. There are evil spirits in the world. There are demons, and they are doing things, and he knows what they're doing, and he knows what they're capable of. And so he uses that as part of his tactic and strategy to accomplish his will. He does not get blamed for their evil. He gets the credit for accomplishing his will through it. Does that make sense to you? Okay, three people nodded. That's good. It's better than some. Um, that's how I kind of think through it. But all that to say, <laughs> that's not what's happening in this passage. Um, I'm just saying it because it could. But the words here, um, ruah ra, ruah ra'ah, it's Hebrew for um, a bad wind. It can, evil can be, the ra'ah there, it can be translated as evil, it can be translated as wicked, but it can also just be translated as ill or um, bad, unfavorable. And the ruach is the word for spirit, but it's also the word for breath or wind. And so it's an expression that's used when it says God sent this um, ruach ra'ah, this ill wind, is how we would say it in English. We use the exact same metaphor in English. We say that there's, a, there's an ill wind between these two people. There's a, there's, I mean, literally you could translate this bad breath. If I, were, if I were translating this passage for a Hebrew exam, that's how I would translate it. God sent bad breath between these friends. Because that's capturing what's happening. Like, everything's fine, and suddenly, you know what that's like. You know, you're, you're, you're with your friend, and you're chatting, and I come in for a whisper, and then it's like, yeah, you've been having garlic. And then there's this distance. That's what's happening here. These people that were thick as thieves together are now suddenly there's this distance between them. This distance is coming from the Lord. There's an ill wind that is sent by God that's falling out of the parties. And it's all told to us to remind us that everything that's happening is because God is driving this consequence. Verse 56 summed it up again. God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So this type of judgment is not a natural judgment. It's a punitive judgment. God has sent this. Um, there are still punitive judgments from God today. God will sometimes judge a person or a situation because that's what people deserve. Uh, we see glimpses of it in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's the passage about communion where Paul says that some of you in the Corinthian church are sick and some of you are even dying because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. You are coming in with unrepentant sin, you're in immorality, you've not made right with the Lord, and you're sharing in the body and blood of Christ, pretending, acting as if uh, you are celebrating with the community what Christ has done to liberate you from your sins, but you're still in those sins. And because of that, God is making you sick so that you can't come and join us, so that you can't partake in this. 
So that's one, that's punitive, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Then um, Acts chapter 5, you have this example of Ananias and Sapphira, where Peter, you remember what happens with them? Everyone's selling their property, and everyone's like, wow, they're selling their property and giving money to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira are like, we're going to sell our property too, and we're going to give some of the money to the church, which was fine, but they told the people, they led people to believe that they were giving all of their money to the church. And so Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not for your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then take two, the same thing happens with his wife. So in Acts chapter 5, what happens here is the church is starting to grow. This is the first church. They're all in Jerusalem. There's thousands of people that are new believers. They're all they're sitting under the apostles' teaching. They need money. So the people who lived in Jerusalem start selling their property to fund this church. And it's just this wonderful picture of God's provision and people's generosity. And everything's wonderful, but there's this fly in the ointment, isn't there? There's this one couple who's just basking in the glory. Like, we want to be one of the popular people that's selling their land and giving all the money to the church, but we also want to keep some of the money for ourselves and not tell anybody. And so God enacts the first case of extreme church discipline, where he strikes dead these people for lying to the Spirit. And the purpose there is punitive. It's not corrective. It's not so they can learn a lesson. They didn't learn a lesson. They died. It's not a natural consequence either. It's not like if you ever lie, you just fall down dead. This was a punishment from God where he struck them dead. Now, it had an effect on everybody else, didn't it? Because it says every great fear came. Everyone else who heard it, they were like, honey, just make sure you fill out that the receipt, that invoice perfectly, that you get the whole amount, and let's not lie because now we can see what happens. But that's punitive. Romans 13 says the government doesn't bear the sword in vain meaning capital punishment. And Jesus told Peter, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So the idea of capital punishment is also punitive. Now, if you get into debates about capital punishment with people, they'll often say something like this. How can you teach somebody not to kill by killing them? And that's, that's missing the point. You're not executing a murderer to teach them a lesson. You're executing a murderer because that's what they deserve. You know, it's not just any murder. It's usually, you know, it's people that have taken innocent life in a heinous way and are unrepentant of it. And these people are a danger to society. They need to be removed from society. And that's what the Bible says in Genesis 9. And it's brought up again in the New Testament in Romans 13. Is that the, the government bears the sword. And you deserve to be executed if you have taken the life of innocence in that way. Revelation 16 gives a chilling reason for the judgment in Revelation. Revelation 16, 5. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just, just are you, O holy one, who is, who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It is what they deserve. It's this concept in scripture of just teleonis. Just teleonis is when the punishment is just. God gives the same type of punishment that for the crime that you committed. You were shedding their blood. God turns your water to blood. Just tell me, why? Because this is what they deserve. 
In Genesis 9, the reason for capital punishment is given. It's not rehabilitation. It's not even deterrent. Genesis 9, 5 says, Your lifeblood will be required a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from man and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Here's the reason. Whoever sheds blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's the reason. Whoever sheds the blood of man, whoever kills somebody deliberately an innocent person, must be executed. Why? Because you killed somebody in the image of God. That's how that works. And God says that's not only true for humans, that's true for animals. If an animal kills a human, the animal needs to be put down. You say, well, maybe you can train. It's not the animal's fault that the human stuck his hand in the orca's mouth. Yeah, that's not the point. That's not the point. If you strike against the image of God, you don't deserve to take another breath. Punitive. Now, the final one, the corrective one, um, just briefly, this is not found in our passage. We don't really find a corrective one in our passage because everybody who deserves to die ends up actually dead. But there is one in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. So in Hebrews chapter 12, this is kind of the classic passage you go to to teach corrective discipline. My children know this passage well. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The writer of Hebrews is making this point. For the Lord disciplines the one who he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So his argument is this. If you are being judged by God and you're a believer. This is not punitive. You're not being killed. This is not a deterrent for others. This is corrective. God is allowing a consequence in your life to get your attention, to draw attention to the sin that you're committing, so that you will repent of it, so that you will restore your relationship with Him, so that it may go well with you. If He's not disciplining you, if you call yourself a Christian, you come and you're taking communion, you're participating, you're living a, a double life, you're, you, you're pretending you're a Christian, but you have the secret sin that you love, that you engage in, that you don't repent of, that you don't try to repent of, that you just keep doing and no one else knows, and God's not disciplining you for it, then you're not a Christian. So when you are disciplined by God for your sin... That's a great sign. I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's a very good sign that you're saved because he loves you enough that he wants to restore the relationship with you and he knows as long as you're in sin, there's that breach in relationship. And that's what the writer of Hebrews continues to say. He says this, verse 10, for they, our earthly fathers who, who disciplined us, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And then this great statement, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The discipline we receive is never pleasant, obviously. Today you see the kids disrespectful to their mom, so the mom sends them to their room. Go 
go to your room for an hour where your PlayStation is, where your TV is, where all your toys are, you know, where your CD player is playing music and you can watch TV. That's not, that's pleasant punishment. No, go and smoke a pack of 20 cigarettes in the garage until you vomit. That's unpleasant punishment, okay? The, so the discipline at the time is always painful. It's always unpleasant. And parents, just a little hint. If it's not unpleasant for your kids, you're not doing it right. I was taught by my mentor, if your kids aren't holding their butts and jumping up and down and unable to speak, then you haven't done it right. It needs to be memorable, the pain. It needs to be not permanent, not injury, but memorable because it's unpleasant at the time. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why when you meet parents who have grown children, who are walking with the Lord, who are obedient, who, you know, obey their parents first time with a happy heart all the way, you never say to those parents, you're so lucky. You're so lucky you have good kids. I was born, yeah, I had bad kids. You had good kids. No, they all come bad. If they're good, it's because someone obeyed God and disciplined them and is now reaping the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, the same happens in our spiritual lives. When you are disciplined for your sin, you get caught in your sin. It's embarrassing. You have to confess it. There's consequences. You learn to repent of that sin. And God is doing that because he loves you. The same reason parents discipline their children. Because you love your children. And he says, if you're not disciplined, like, if you're naughty, if you're a kid in this church and you're naughty and you're not being disciplined by me, that means you're not my kid, right? I mean, don't discipline my kids and I'm not going to discipline yours. That's the point there. If you're not being disciplined by God, that means you're not his child. If you're in unrepentant sin. So discipline is, a, is there to draw you closer to God, not to drive you from him. And you can always, you can go and see that in David's life as well, right? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He commits murder by having uh, Uriah killed. He lies about it. He hides it. Eventually, Nathan comes and points it out to him. And there's consequences that come with that. You know, the, the baby dies. The baby can't be the heir to the throne. Um, and there's, there's upheaval in his house. And there's civil war and all sorts of things as that punishment and in, verse, in Psalm 51, he records his confession in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then he says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's David saying, I don't want to be at odds with you. Purge me with hyssop. In other words, you know, bring the consequences. So that I learn my lesson, so I turn from my sins, so that I'm right with you. That's all I want. So the takeaway from Abimelech's life and death is this. Sin ruins lives. It's one of the frequent questions my wife asks in our home when there's any kind of tension is, is your sin making you happy? 
And when she says that, and it's sometimes to the kids, sometimes it's to me, is your sin making you happy? It just chills the air. Because you realize sin never makes you happy. Sin is a, it's a temptation that's a lie. It's a bait that, that looks delectable, but inside is a hook. Sin will ruin your life. Don't be tempted by it. It ruins your marriage. It ruins your relationship with your kids. It ruins your relationship with your friends. It ruins things at church. Sin will ruin lives. And so the consequences that come with sin are a blessing from God to make us fear the sin and the temptation, to make us learn our lesson so that we will avoid all of that. So take that home, obey God, and avoid this. And if you are not a Christian tonight, then you have bigger problems because you have the punitive judgment of eternal damnation hanging over your head. But praise be to God that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who frees us from those eternal consequences. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you never, ever have to fear punitive judgment in the afterlife. It's all taken care of. Yes, there may be natural consequences if you're sinful now. There may be corrective discipline right now. You may even be struck dead in this life, but your eternity is secure because Jesus Christ paid for all the consequence that you deserve for all eternity on the cross. And that's why we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to you that you are our Savior, that we can expect you in the afterlife not to be a, a frowning judge, but a smiling Savior who has paid all of our sin. Lord Jesus, you paid it all. And so because of that, everything we have, we owe you. I pray that you help us to live lives that show that we have been redeemed from our sin, that this very week we would break free from that which tempts us. If there's anyone here, Lord, in unrepentant sin, that even tonight they would turn away from that sin and cry out to you for forgiveness, knowing that you are gracious to forgive, you're slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, where he bore our sin and conquered the grave so that we can live for all eternity without the consequences that we deserve and we get his righteousness that he deserved. So we thank you again for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.